and you are listening to the sirens of G'day audiophiles, this is the Sirens of Audio, my name is Dwayne, we are the podcast who love everything to do with audio and I'm joined as always by Philip. G'day Philip. G'day Dwayne, g'day everyone, great to be here as always. It is very good to be here. You're you're still in Sydney at the moment. I'm sitting in the wilds of South Australia somewhere. I don't even know where I am. It's all dark outside and uh, I'm still um, on my journey around Australia, slowly, slowly making my way back to Tasmania. It's it's a lot colder down south than I'm used to. That was a bit of a shock. How are things going over there in Sydney for you? Well, we've had some hot days. It's been a bit cooler. It's going to get hotter again. So beautiful spring. It's you know, cool in the morning and nights, but lovely during the day. So enjoying the weather at the moment. And that's exactly what listeners of the Sirens of Audio want to know. They want to know about the weather everywhere. So that's uh, that's really good. What have you been listening to lately? We'll get to some recommendations later, but is is, is there anything that uh, has stood out to you in the last uh, week or two? Well, I've been catching up a bit with my Torchwood. So um, last month I've been listening to, well, it came out last month, Torchwood Soho. So I've listened through that and just loved that. And also the, the monthly release from last month and then Ex Machina from this month. So it's, yeah, just catching up with some Torchwood, really enjoying uh, those monthly series in particular, I think are just ideal. Um, I'm loving the fact that the, the field keeps changing from one to one. So that's been great. And Ex Machina was written by Alfie Shaw. So he's a, was he a winner of um, a short story competition? few years back? I think he was. I think that's how he came about. And he's now looks after the short trips. So he's the main one responsible for that. But this is the first time he's written for Torchwood. And he really has got a, yeah, he's put a great one out of the bag. Um, I, I mean, I always love Yanto as a character. He's kind of the Hamlet, uh, you know, part tragic, but also comic. And he's got so many elements and it's interesting because it, it all starts and just isn't making sense because, you know, Cardiff, they keep talking about Cardiff being a hole and deserted and et cetera, et cetera. And as the story goes on, you realise it really is. It's almost, a, it's almost a lockdown story because there's just nobody in Cardiff and the whole puzzle is trying to work out, well, where is everyone? Why has, how has a whole city of people managed to disappear? Why does he go into think he's the only one that works at Torchwood? And um, he gets to be the hero and work out the whole puzzle. So it's a it's a great story. Well, listen, well, listen to. Very good. Hasn't Cardiff? Oh, hasn't Wales just gone into lockdown? Did I notice that on the on the news? I think all of England's in trouble at the moment. So we, we might hear a bit more in in a moment. We speak to our guest. Yeah, for sure. All right. What I've been listening to is uh, some of the things that you've been recommending because you're 
You've been listening to a lot of the recent releases. Um, I've started listening to the Bernice Summerfield Volume 6, is it? Volume 6? So that's that's very good. But uh, the one I, I, I listened to and finished today was um, Missy um, Series 2, which I know that you, you had a lot of affection for. And it had uh, a, some great performances with, with um, Michelle Gomez, Rufus Hound, but I thought the standout performance today for me when I heard Too Many Masters was Helen Goldwyn uh, playing the Empress Maul. I thought she was spectacular uh, in that role. I didn't even know it was her until because I didn't look at the cast list before I started listening. And uh, I got the shock of my life when I found out that it was her playing that at the end of it. Uh, do you recall that performance? I do. Uh, Helen Goldwyn is always amazing, but I often have to look her up. If, if she's speaking her proper re- received pronunciation, I can pick her. But so often she's playing characters, I've got no idea who she is until, yeah, I take the cast list out. I know she often gets uh, asked to do a lot of wild tracks and things, and especially since lockdown. Um, she, she often gets her husband and her kids racing into the room asking if she's okay. So I think that's pretty funny. I often see her tweeting that the that the kids came in and asked if she was okay because she was doing a death scene or something like that. So, yeah, good on you, Helen Goldwyn. She's, she's uh, always kicking some great goals for Big Finish. Well, I've been listening to her today because following your recommendation, I managed to get hold of the Tomorrow People. So I've oh, listened to the good. first two episodes of that. So I'm, I'm enjoying her in that as well. Excellent. Uh, it's a fantastic series. It's such a shame that it's... Uh, unavailable to obtain if, uh, if you haven't uh, heard it before, unless you're getting second-hand copies from somewhere. Okay, so we've got a bit of a different theme. We're not looking at audio drama today so much as audio music. Um, tell us a bit about what's coming up uh, in a moment. Well, one of the uh, important things about Doctor Who is always the, the music behind what's going on, the soundtrack music, and one of the... Uh, Last of the composers of the classic series was Dominic Lynn. And so Dominic's been releasing a few uh, remixes of some of his work, and I happened to pick up on some of them a couple of months ago, started listening, commented, and uh, he got back to me. And so I've been chatting with Dominic Lynn, and he's agreed to come on and talk about what he's been doing with Doctor Who music. So, yeah, looking forward to hearing him and all his background to what he's been doing, and he's going to be a pretty exciting guest to have on. Excellent. Let's listen to uh, a bit of a sample of some of his remixes that uh, he's got uh, up uh, online, and I'm sure you can purchase hard copies too. But uh, we'll listen to a bit of a sample of uh, one of those, and we'll come back with Dominic Glynn.
Dominic, for being here. It's great to chat with you. Um, I just want to start off where you're obviously have a passion for music. How, how did you get involved in music in the first place? Uh, well, I sort of came from a uh, musical family in the sense that my mother taught piano to children, and that's a sort of like as a sideline that she did. And my brother was a pianist, and he still is. In fact, he's a piano teacher. Uh, and it's we were always surrounded by music growing up. And so I just I just grew up with a love of music, really. Um, what instruments do you play? Uh, well, let's go for instrument, um, because uh, aside from a, a brief period where I experimented with the violin when I was about 12, um, it's really keyboards only for me. I've, I've tried other instruments and I've never got on with anything else. So I'm a keyboard player and um, everything is done by the keyboard, basically. Can I just ask what uh, music you were influenced by as uh, as a younger person? What were some of your musical influences out there? Wow, so wide, really. I mean, I, I was always a big fan of um, TV and film music, actually. So that was always a big thing early on in my life. I always wanted to write something like the theme to the Persuaders or... Uh, or uh, Department S, or one of those sort of drama thriller series of the 60s. I used to love that music. And then, of course, the Bond movies, or John Barry's music for that. That was all a big influence on me. And then, as I got a bit older, I got into my sort of progressive rock, you know, going into the early 70s. My sister got me into Pink Floyd and stuff like that. Tangerine Dream. Uh, and then, as I got a bit older, I got into 80s music and started, started a band which is a kind of 80s pop synth band. And then a bit later on in the 90s, I was heavily into techno and um, sort of underground electronica. And then I made a lot of the underground electronica tracks as well. So it was a kind of, depending on the decade, I was into all sorts of different stuff. And now it's all kind of amalgamated into one big blurry mess that I come up with now. So that's, that's great. Um, so in terms of, let's talk a little bit about your Doctor Who credentials, because lots of people are interested in that. So you were, yeah. you were quite, actually, firstly, I think, happy birthday for a couple of days ago. So you just had a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, Sunday, birth, yeah. Birthday. So how, how, how are you going in lockdown? Are you celebrating? What, what's happening with you? Did well, you ask that? We're out of lockdown. We've still got restrictions going on here, but we're not, um, we're not sort of locked in. And when we were, I was pretty okay because obviously working in my own home studio, I work from home anyway. So, um, you know, it was more personal things, you know, like the lack of contact with the family and everything. As far as work went, you know, in the lucky position of being a composer who works from home, um, it wasn't too bad. What part of the country are you in? Uh, so we are in uh, the sort of top of the southeast, which is a Cambridgeshire. You could, we're sort of in the middle, basically. We're about uh, 90 miles north of London. Right, okay. So how close to Market Harbour are you? Not that far, actually. Yeah, that's, that's a bit further northwest, I think, from us. But yes, not that far away. Yeah. Okay. You know? I, I, I have a cousin in Market Harbour, so that's, 
a place I love going to when I get the chance. Okay, yeah, not that far away. We're, we're um, about mm, three quarters of an hour, 40 minutes away from Cambridge. Yeah, beautiful place. So in terms of um, Doctor Who, how, how did you first make a connection and end up writing music for Doctor Who? Because you were very young. Yeah, well, I, um, I grew up watching it, loving Doctor Who. And, you know, as a child, it was my favourite programme and all that kind of stuff. And um, then I was in the band. I was talking about 80s pop band. And then that kind of like petered out a bit, didn't really go anywhere. But I'd already figured out that I really wanted to make a living out of making music. So as a synthesizer player, which is kind of what I was at that point, um, I just looked at other opportunities for a synthesizer playing and where could I earn a living doing that? And there was a TV program on called Doctor Who, which had a lot of synthesizer music in its, you know, soundtrack. So I thought I'll, I'll write a letter, you know, naively, I'll, I'll write a letter to my, to the producer of Doctor Who and he'll give me a job. <laughs> and um, so I naively sent off a letter to the producer of Doctor Who and he naively gave me a job, basically. It was a, it was a little bit of an intervening period where he asked me to send demo tapes, which I did. But by and large, I'm sort of like, you know, like con uh, compressing that story. But that's what happened. I wrote him a letter. He wrote back and said, um, you know, show me what you can do. And I sent him a couple of cassette tapes of, you know, my ideas of how I thought Doctor Who music could sound. And um, then he offered me the job. It, there was a little intervening gap because it got taken off the air for a year um, during Colin Baker's time, as you probably know. And um, I think I, I was going to be working on the show just before it got taken off. Um, so there was a pause, but but pretty much it was around um, just before season 23 that, that uh, John offered me the job. So had you done much composition before that? No. Uh, well, only I'd written for, for the band I was in. And I had um, done a little bit of experimenting with music for corporate video, um, just which, you know, a friend of mine worked for a company called Rent-A-Kill that, that um, as I always say, they exterminate rats. And I think that's what, uh, what John Nathan Turner liked, is I'd written a bit of music, literally like old time 1920s style, going into the studio, watching the film on a screen, and then me playing my synth and coming up with the soundtrack that they recorded at the time. And uh, one of those films, the training film or whatever, got, got it, won some award. I can't remember what the award was now for corporate video work. And I sent that to John Nathan Turner, amongst the other things I sent in. And uh, I think he later said in an, inter in an interview that that was one of the things that he liked, the fact that I'd exterminated rats. He thought I'd probably be quite good with Daleks. And... <laughs> Although I never, did a, I never did a Dalek story, which is unfortunate. It's pretty amazing that a producer would actually just hand over to a, such a young composer with a lot, a, lot, a lot of experience. I think I was 24 when I wrote to him uh, to start with. And I, by the time uh, season 23 actually went out, I was 26, uh, 25 when it actually went out to start with. And um, so I'm even looking 23 when I first wrote to him because it, it was a little gap between them. So, yes, I mean, that was the thing about John Nathan Turner. He was really good at giving people a chance. And he, his philosophy, I think, was that young talent is often the hungriest and therefore is the, the most keen to, you know, impress. And so he had a lot of young um, people doing their first jobs, basically. You know, people like Andrew Cartmel, who'd never script edited before. And, um, and you know, loads of his crew were, were young 
people, young talent, trying things out for the first time. So you didn't actually have any, um, I mean, you, you did um, not only did some incidental music for, for the show, but John Nathan Turner actually gave you the theme music for the show. So that yeah, was a yeah. pretty big task. So what, what were you given a brief as to what direction he wanted to take the theme from? Because it was pretty iconic, the first, the I early thought, 80s theme. First of all, I was never... I was never expecting to do the theme. I just, it never crossed my mind. So um, he, he actually commissioned me to do the incidental music first. And then after commissioning me for the first four episodes, I think, he then came unexpectedly and said, would you like to redo the theme tune? So, which I, of course I jumped at the chance. Um, and the brief, I have to confess, although I've always tried to make it a, uh, a sort of, um, an absolute rigid thing that when you get commissioned to do a job, you follow the brief. I, I didn't really follow his brief because his brief um, was to make a sort of disco version of the theme. And I just thought, oh, that's not going to work. You know, I really don't think, bear you in were mind, right. this was the, yeah, this was the early <laughs> 80s and we hadn't really progressed beyond disco as we knew it then, which was, you know, cheesy. And at that point, we'd gone past underground disco should we say and i think his idea was just would have would have been too cheesy for it so i i said oh, i tried it. it didn't work i didn't it didn't work but he didn't seem to mind he's quite happy what i came out with so and as it turns out many years later i did remix them obviously uh, and i did do a sort of dance dance inspired version but i wouldn't describe it as discos were you um did you have um uh, a lot of nerves uh, going into such an iconic piece of music. This wasn't something you were just composing. You had to arrange something that had been established for over 20 years. So how did you feel going into that? A trepidation might be a word, but I think as a sort of naive and cocky 25-year-old, I just thought, oh, I'll, I'll find a way. <laughs> and I'll find, find a way of doing it. But yeah, I was, I was probably more nervous about the reaction but um, I don't remember being sort of scared of it. I just remember being, you know, thinking this is a major task. I better not cock this up. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just sort of got on with it. Also, I had a very, very little time to worry about it because I think the, the phone call from, from John Nathan Turner came very close to when he actually needed it. So uh, I didn't really have time to do anything other than just get on with it and then hope that he'd like it. Do you re remember how you would have uh, how did you approach it in terms of what you want to do? Did you lay down everything yourself at home on your sink? How did, how did you actually approach the whole task? Yeah. I was woefully under um, under equipped uh, music equipment wise. So previously, um, stuff had been done at the Radiophonic Workshop, and of course, it's stacked full of every conce conceivable piece of electronic equipment you'd need to make electronic music and here was as i say cocky naive 25 year old living in sussex um in a little house wanting to make music for television and not having a clue how to do it somehow convincing the producer of a major tv show <laughs> that he could put the reins of a tv show like doctor who in the hands of me no idea how i managed to convince him to do it but um i didn't really have a lot of equipment i had something like three synthesizers and a tape machine. 
and um, I knew that I couldn't really compete with the, the magnificent Peter Howell version in the same way. His was just gorgeous. And I thought the only way I can achieve a, a good result for the Doctor Who theme is to do it very differently and to try and almost go back to it being more um, kind of um, lo-fi and um, and try and emphasise the, the dark, scary side of Doctor Who rather than the and the mysterious side of Doctor Who, rather than the very high tech version. Because I knew that my my music equipment wouldn't enable me to sound that high tech. So I decided to go, like I say, more lo-fi and scary and mysterious. Which is, you know, that was the my um, the aim for when I for not, when I did the theme. And I think John understood that. So um, happily, it got through. Yeah, it's a lot more minimal uh, than other versions as well, isn't it? So um, probably a lot more craftworky, I guess, in some ways. Yeah, well, when I when I um, was asked to do it, John sent over a, a reel of tape from each of the previous versions for me to listen to, and I and I listened to all the previous versions and um, sort of amalgamated in my brain all the bits I liked about the the other versions and also. Other music that I liked, yes, Craftworks a good, 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 um, good shout. Um, and I suppose it just all jumbled up in my brain, and I came up with whatever I came up with. Really. By the time you did the theme, had you already done some of the other TV shows? No, no, uh, I hadn't. In fact, so although I was commissioned to do the incidental music first, I think the very first thing I had to do for it was the theme. So completely unexpectedly. So the commission came, I was given the scripts and I was thinking about what I was going to do with the incidental music. And then I think, uh, I'm trying to remember the details of what came when, but I don't think I'd actually started working on the music uh, when the request came to do the thing. So um, yeah, I hadn't done anything. It was basically my first professional job. Were you aware of what had been happening with the show in terms of the cancellation, the coming back, the nervousness about it coming back. Was any of that part of what you knew or were you just so far removed? We all knew about that because it had been off the air for a year. So, so I knew that it had, and it had been in the news and it was a new big news story, um, you know, all about saving the doctor and everything. So I knew all that um, had happened. And also, as I say, John Nathan Turner had already um, suggested that he would want to employ me to do the work on the show before it got cancelled. So I thought, hey, I'm going to work on Doctor Who. And then the news came that it had been cancelled. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to work on Doctor Who. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I was aware of all that. I wasn't aware of the behind the scenes shenanigans that were going on while uh, Trial of a Time Lord was um, being made. That was something I only discovered midway through that season, basically. Okay, so your first uh, credit as uh, incidental music was The Mysterious Planet. What was the process in terms of writing that music? Was it all filmed first and you were given the information? Were you given a script to start doing some work before any filming? Yeah, well, I was given the script only uh, as the final demo for John. Um, so he gave me the script of episode one, the very last um, thing he needed in order for me, for me to you know, get the approval of him for doing it was writing the music to the opening scene. So the opening credit, uh, the opening scene of Trial of a Time Lord is the big sweeping space vista of this spaceship 
um, and the TARDIS being zapped down inside it. And uh, it was a very expensive model shot. And um, he wanted a piece of music that would accompany this very expensive model shot. And that was kind of like the, the test, could I do that? So I wrote that opening music for Trial of a Time Lord ahead of the, um, the shooting of the, of the um, episode. Um, and then when the episode was had been shot, I had to re-record that piece of music that I'd written as a demo because it wasn't fit timing-wise, it didn't fit. So I, I rearranged it to fit the, the visuals. But, but um, the way of working was always to write to picture. So once the episode had been edited, uh, you'd have a little session with the director and, and Dick Mills who did the special sound and you'd sit around and uh, usually at the Radiophonic Workshop we'd go and view the episode and um, work out where the music was going to go. I mean at the time that was the most expensive scene ever shot in Doctor Who and certainly it is a, a, mam- a mammoth moment. It looks amazing on screen, the sound is fantastic um, and then they replayed again a few episodes later. Yeah, very briefly. I mean, I don't know why they didn't use it to death. I think the amount of money they've spent on it, I'd have used it all over every episode. But um, yes, it was used in the opening of uh, episode one and a, just a little snippet of it later on somewhere in one of the other episodes. But uh, yeah, it was very expensive and it was really impressive and it still looks impressive now. Yeah. Do you know how much music you actually composed for that first show? Um, it was, on average, it was usually about... 15 minutes usually i mean it could be 10 minutes it could be 20 minutes you know it's it depended on the episode um it's probably probably about 15 minutes i should think maybe a little bit less so that's per episode so for the four episodes you you did about an hour of music probably not far off that yeah yeah that's about right i mean they 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 used less music then than they tend to use now there's music all over every episode of everything now (laughs) but um there was a lot more and I'm a big believer in silence. You know, you don't need music everywhere. And I think it, music is much more effective when it isn't plastered all over every part of the episodes. Um, so, yeah, and it depended on the director and what the director wanted. But, uh, yeah, I mean, as I say, 10, 10, 15, 20 minutes, anywhere in between those levels for the music. Who actually talks to you about the music? Do you sit down with the director and the producer? Do you just, how much collaboration is there between what you're doing and what people are asking for? It's, it's the director, not the producer. So, um, yes, before the thing is shot, you normally have a prelim- preliminary discussion with the director who would run through what he has in mind. And some directors would know exactly what they want and other directors wouldn't have a clue. And um, you'd have to sort of put your suggestions forward and, you know, it just depended on who the director was and what the script might have suggested. So some scripts... Um, there might have been discussions just really for just because we wanted to like for example with happiness patrol i had lots of discussions with andrew cartmel and um and graham curry even though their input actually wasn't crucial at that point because it wasn't their decision about music but they just wanted to you know tell me what they thought because obviously it was close to their heart and um but ultimately it's down to the director in combination with with the composer I, mean, I guess with the happiness patrol music plays a very pivotal role in the storytelling probably more yeah. so than the other shows you've done um okay, yeah. excuse the harmonica was that sampled or real it was real um but there was an awful lot of problem with it because the uh the actor was supposed to be playing the harmonica but he actually wasn't 
a harmonica player and he couldn't play the harmonica. So although we understood when he was booked that he could play the harmonica, we ended up having to get another harmonica player to play the harmonica, not, not the actor miming to the music because it was written the other way around. So the, the music guy, the, the harmonica player, had to in effect play his harmonica to the, the movements of the actor playing the part, which was really tricky, I have to say. Um, but, you know, the, the speed at which these shows were made, um, there was no time to do anything other than that. So you fix, if, if there's a problem, you find a way of fixing it. So I knew a really good blues harmonica player called Tidy Burney, Adam Tidy Burney, and he played the harmonica for me. Um, you know, we, we did our best to make it fit the visuals. Music for Survivor has been released on record. Is that, is that the only show that you've had that's been released fully on CD? On CD, yes. Um, years ago, um, in probably 1989 or something, the uh, Doctor Who Appreciation Society put out a, a tape, cassette of the soundtracks to all the previous stories, or most of the previous stories I'd done, I think. Um, but that was a, uh, quite a rare item and there aren't very many of them around now and it was on tape only. So yes, that's the only full story that's come out. Um, I am told there will be more, um, but uh, when is not in my uh, area. I don't know when, but it should, it should be coming out. Other things should be coming out. Will you be asked to, to contribute to that, remaster it, rework anything, or will they just take what you've got and whack it on? These sort of releases, I think people like them to be uh, as close to, you know, as close to the originals as they possibly can without, you know, there'll be some remastering, but Mark Ayers usually does all the remastering for those, um, those releases. So Mark will do it. And, um, you know, I don't think they'll need anything else from me. It'll just be a case of, you know, re releasing the tape. I think Mark's already got copies of all the tapes of everything. So um, it'll just get remastered to get the best sound out of it all and, and out it goes. Now, your Doctor Who remix was later taken up by Big Finish, as used for the Sixth Doctor there. Was that remastered as well, or was that, what was happening with that? Not by me again. It was remastered. Um, I don't know who did it, but it's, they've done a nice job on it, and it's lovely to get it used so regularly on the Big Finish stuff. It, you know, and it has, as a result, even though on the TV it was only used for the Trial of a Time Lord se uh, series, it's nice that it's now become really associated with Colin as his the sixth doctor theme and he calls it his theme now and that's that's really nice you know it was a short time on tv but a long life for a big finish which is really good in terms of other audio work um i've noticed that you've been credited for other tv shows and movies um what are some of the other things you've done and i I did notice that you had a credit for some Red Dwarf. I'm I'm curious to know which series of Red Dwarf your music appeared in. Yeah, so um, the the vast bulk of my professional work has been uh, production library music, which is music written for TV and film, uh, but not specifically for a, a particular production. It's written as a as a library of music that people can grab and put in a production when they need it. And um, 
the music for Red that was using Red Dwarf, I think it was season eight, quite a lot in season eight, actually, was various cues of music. Funnily enough, one of them featuring Adam Burney, who played the harmonica in the Happiness Patrol. Uh, there's some music, I think it's in season eight, where uh, the crew, there's a virus going around the ship and they lose all their clothes. There's a, there's yeah, a I piece know, of I know it well. <laughs> music in with a sort of like a, uh, you know, it's like a dance track with a harmonica. That that was one of mine, and with Adam, Adam Burney, as I say, on harmonica. Hey, what's happened to your sleeve, man? What? <laughs> my sleeve, I've noticed that before. My God, they're eating my clothes. And then there's a few other cues of more sort of drama, wartime music uh, accompanying various model shots and and sort of semi-drama scenes in Red Dwarf. Um, so there's, yeah, there's quite a lot in that season of Red Dwarf. Um, but it's also meant that writing that kind of music, you end up with music in the most ridiculous places you wouldn't imagine, you know, which is why I've had music in The Simpsons because I hadn't written music for The Simpsons, but when they needed a particular type of music for something, they used something that I'd written, and loads of other shows, loads of shows around the world, mostly around the world, not, not UK-based, but a lot of it in America, a lot of it, you know, where, you know, Germany, Scandinavia, all over the place. You end up with music in films and trailers for films, and it's a, it's a very... Um, well, it's a very weird job, to be honest, because you often go to see something. You may be sitting in a cinema and a, something comes on and I go, oh, hang on, I wrote that. And you don't know in advance very often when, when your music is going to appear in something, particularly in TV. It happens all, you know, all the time. You hear something, you're watching something and you know, it comes on. I might go away on holiday somewhere around the world and I put the TV on in the hotel and something comes on and I've written that music. You know, it's strange job so how does that work with you getting paid for that do you do, do you just get a royalty coming from that library but you don't necess necessarily know where it is where it's been you placed do, you do eventually because you get the royalty um sort of uh, account sheet which shows you what the track was how much you've earned from that track and usually where it was broadcast what, what the program was it was broadcast on or the name of the film um and yes, that's how we get paid as a, as a, as a composer for, for uh, TV production music, film production music. That's really how you make your money. You know, it's when it gets broadcast and then you earn performance royalties from it. So that's it's a strange way of making a living. But, um, you know, it, it's the, the more your music gets used, the better off you are, the better you, you, know, you, um, you earn. Is it just a cheaper way for producers to get music, so using stock music rather than employing a composer? Very often it's that. Sometimes it's um, they will use it in combination with a composer. They they might already have a composer, um, but they need a particular piece of music, which is either not in the style that the composer works in, or they need quickly. They need something very fast that's already done. I mean, I'm thinking of it as, an, as an example, um, the series Homeland. I don't know if you've ever seen Homeland. Yep. 
I've got a bit of music in Homeland only because they needed some music of a, of a news, um, high tech news theme, you know, for a TV broadcast. And rather than getting the composer who's written the score to go and write a piece of news theme music, they use a piece of news theme music that I'd written. So, you know, it just sometimes it's convenient for for directors and editors to just grab a piece of music that's already written. Um, and that's a sort of good case in point, really. I assume you don't get credit for that, though? Well, weirdly, you do for movies. You don't get credit usually for TV shows. If you've contributed library music to a TV show, I think partly because the credits would go on for hours if, if everybody got credited in TV. In films, they do go on for hours. So, um, yeah, they do tend to give you a credit if you've had a piece of production music in a movie. So while you were composing for Doctor Who, did you start getting other work at the same time or was it after? Yeah, I did. I mean, Doctor Who sort of led on to some other work with the BBC, um, which were a lot was sort of education TV, schools TV and, and education stuff. Um, but almost as soon as Doctor Who finished or around about the time Doctor Who finished in 1989, um, I got offered my first library album which was a you know album of music a whole album of music for tv which was um and it was called night at the movies and it was basically the the theme for that album that they commissioned was music in the style of famous films so i did got the chance to write music that was a bit like jaws and a bit like star wars and you know and and, and was sort of in in the style of major composers which taught me I can't tell you how much it taught me because I don't read music and everything I do, I do by ear. So I had to listen to John Williams, for example, and think, how the hell did John Williams write the Star Wars theme? And what did he use? And what sort of instruments did he use? And I just had to listen to it over and over again until I could figure out how it was done and try and, you know, do it, do a sort of rough, you know, Copies, is that the word? Um, in those days, we did a lot of that sort of stuff. They don't do homage. Thank you. Yes, but that's the word I was looking for. Uh, but they, yeah, they wanted, and very often that stuff would get used in parodies of things. So, so there'd be a, a comedy show about Star Wars or something, and then they'd use a bit of music that sounded a bit like it, or, or adverts. I mean, loads of adverts would use stuff that was reminiscent of Jaws, but not actually Jaws, or, or Bond, the Bond films, you know, all that kind of thing. Great fun to do, and I say it taught me loads. But that was the first production library album I did, and then I haven't stopped doing them since, really. Fortunately, so, so you, you still don't read music? No, no. So I mean, do, I can look, I can look at look... A, it's some music and say, well, that's A and that's C sharp, but I can't actually read. I start looking at a book and saying, well, that's A and that's B, and I can see that's a Z, but actually putting it together into words is a whole whole different ball game. So how do you notate your music for other musicians to be able to play? Or is it just, you just well, lay it all down as all your work? If I am working with other musicians, and yes, fortunately I do get the, the opportunity sometimes from time to time to work with orchestras and things, you, you have to do it. It's a combination of using the computer, because I write on the computer, I write on the keyboard. The computer program will notate everything that I write automatically. It's not very good at doing it, I have to say. So you get an approximation of it with the computer. But it doesn't necessarily write it down in a way that, say, a violinist would comfortably play, there'd be a lot of frowning and a lot of stopping and starting as they look at the, the uh, manuscript and saying, oh, that's not right, you know, but you, you, it, it does it in a way, in a form. So if I'm working with 
a string quartet or something, I can get away with using a combination of the computer's um, a notation and showing it to somebody who does read and say, look, is there anything wrong with this? Can you just look at this and say, is it, is it going to work? And they'll go, yeah, no, that's fine. That, they can play that, no problem. If it's a bigger score for an orchestra, then I will then work with an orchestrator who will convert the MIDI score that I've written into a notation score and they will do it in such a way that it's um, comfortable for people to play and that the bar indicators are in the right place and you know various technical issues that I would probably miss. I was listening to your showreel early, early today and was really impressed by some of the big orchestral scores that came out. So, I mean, I know you more electronically, but there was some mm -hmm. beautiful orchestral work that you've done um, for some other shows and some other themes. I thought that was just you know, big and powerful stuff as well. Oh, thank you. Well, a lot of that actually is all actually done on the keyboard. So it's amazing how uh, in incredibly good um, keyboard technology has become sample technology and everything so there's a lot of mock mock-up orchestra stuff um, in fact on my show there's a lot of mock-up orchestra stuff so depending on what you heard it may have been real or it may have been fake right i'm not sure now you've thrown me <laughs> i've got to go listen again can i just pick up on the the real harmonica which philip and i were debating before you came on dominic and uh and i suggested it may have been sampled but you said it was real Another instrument from, from one of your shows, uh, Survival, uh, was the electric guitar. Um, mm -hmm. that, was, that was a real guitar you were using in there too. What, yeah. What, so so you, you are a keyboard player, but you, you're quite happy yeah. to go in and use these real instruments when necessary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think it always brings it to life a bit too. Um, you know, unless you want a very, very sort of stark electronic sound, which is perfectly good as well. Yeah, but, but for something like those episodes, uh, Survival particularly, and Happiness Patrol, you know, I've sort of pushed to have a real player. I mean, I think Happiness Patrol really needed to have a real player because um, the character was playing, you know, and to be honest, you know, he was, he was supposed to be playing the harmonica. So I, I didn't want it to sound artificial. I didn't want to use a sample of somebody playing the harmonica because it would have sounded artificial. Um, harmonicas are one of those instruments is very difficult to get a very believable sample of a harmonica. Um, so there was never any question really we had to get a player in for that um with survival um it was kind of a request of the director you know he he wanted he wanted a score particularly for the alien planet he wanted a score that sounded a bit reminiscent of something from dire straits that he played me and um i thought well again i you know guitars are not brilliantly um reproduced by keyboards certainly in those days they weren't so it just seemed obvious to get a guitarist in and i've always been interested in mixing electronics with real instruments whether it's orchestra or, or just soloists and um I, you know i think it worked as it worked you know as it turned out worked quite well um because having a guitarist there meant i could use him in different ways i could use electric guitar for the dire straight style uh, uh rock stuff that that the director had asked me to do for the alien planet uh, but i could also use acoustic guitar for the kind of horseback shots where it kind of was reminiscent of an uh, you know a um, spaghetti western or something and it and it just gave the 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 soundtrack a, a unique identity i think
And I think the electric guitars really fit the the cat theme well as well in that particular story with the screechy sound you can get out of the guitar. And I should apologise. I said I said you use real instruments. Not that a keyboard is not a real instrument. I oh, I know what you mean. That. <laughs> you could say acoustic. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. And you're right there. I mean, it's absolutely right. You know, uh, the, the actual air moving from an acoustic instrument can really bring to life something that otherwise might sound a bit sterile. Yep. Um, can, I, can I just more move forward a few years to something that I noticed last week, Big Finish was uh, promoting the B7 Media production of Blake 7, A Rebellion Reborn. And I noticed that you, that you and two other composers worked on, on those episodes for the music. How did you get involved with that project? It's a good question, actually. How did I get involved? Well, I knew um, I knew Eric, uh, Andrew Sewell from... Um, how did I know him? I'm trying to think how I... I can't remember how I knew him. I knew various people. So I knew Ben Aronovich, who'd written some of it. And, um, and I'd obviously met Andrew a few times before, and I can't remember where we'd met. But... Um, you know, he just asked me if I'd do it. And I, you know, I thought, well, I, I couldn't miss out on an opportunity to work on Blake 7 as well as Doctor Who. So, uh, yeah, I kind of jumped at the chance. And it was great to get a chance again to do some um, big orchestral scores. So those, that's a good example, actually. The Blake 7 stuff I did was quite an orchestral, you know, orchestral sound, which is, I think, what they wanted for that stuff, to sound uh, like a movie. They wanted it to sound like a movie. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll give a movie soundtrack music. And um, so it was a good, good opportunity to experiment with the, the samples, the orchestra, orchestral samples, and try and turn it into an epic score. What have, you, what have you been doing lately? What are you doing at the moment? I've just I've done a few things recently. So I've done an album of Scandi Noir thriller music um, designed to, to be used either in a parody or in a real Scandi noir thriller, depending on who needs it, sort of dark, moody drama, murder mystery music. Um, I have just done well. I'm in the middle of an album now, which is going to be a not orchestral, but a small group of players, probably string quartet and a, <coughs> maybe some woodwind stuff like that, and keyboards. And it's kind of a drama stroke comedy music again for more high end. Um, arts and culture type TV. Um, what else have I been up to recently? Oh, I've just done a film. Well, I've done it. Yes, I've just done a film um, documentary called Flint, which is um, about the water poisoning crisis in Flint, Michigan, um, which has been going on for years and is a, quite a scandal. Um, and the film has been documenting documenting what's been going on in Flint. And that hopefully will be out um, next year. Um, and it's made by the same director, Anthony Baxter, who I've worked with before. We've done some films about some of Donald Trump's nefarious activities, a um, film called You've Been Trumped and You've Been Trumped Too, um, and also Dangerous Games, so three movies, actually. And he's a fantastic filmmaker. So I, I do quite a lot of work with him as well. Flint, Michigan certainly gets a lot of um, attention on it for various trials that happen in that in that place. A lot of things happen there, don't they? You've got Michael Moore, yeah. who's obsessed yeah. with the place, plus uh, lots of other things seem to happen there too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's a, it's a very poor city. And so you can bet your life if some terrible things are going to go down, they're going to go down in a poor place um, rather than the wealthier areas. And so Michigan, or, or particularly Flint, 
um, does have its fair share of problems. And it's a, yeah, it's a t terrible tale, actually. But it's well worth seeing if you get a chance to see it when it comes out. Which countries tend to use your music the most? Because you seem to have a lot of uh, Scandinavian connections. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, <clears throat> a lot of it is down to where the publishers are particularly effective in their communications with TV and broadcasters and everything. I mean, I've, probably America, um, Germany, Scandinavia, um, I mean, Japan. It ends up in all sorts of places, to be honest. And, and it, you know, I can write for different publishers. When you write production library music, you're writing for a publisher and they distribute the music around the world. And they, different companies will have better relationships with other parts of the world, different parts of the world. So I might write for one company and they get lots of stuff in America on TV in America. Another company might be really good with Japan and the Far East and maybe Australia or something. It just depends who you've written for and, you know, and also the type of music that you're writing. You know, the, the thing about library, production library music is it's every kind of music. So it doesn't matter whether you're writing uh, drum and bass or you're writing 1920s um, trad jazz or you're writing uh, avant-garde string quartet music. It's, it's all there in library music because somebody somewhere needs that kind of music and they need it now. <laughs> and, um, so that's, that's where library music comes into its own. It's already done. People don't have to think about it. It's already done. It should be of a very high quality because um, you know, that's their aim is to just only produce high quality, totally um, instantly usable music. So you only get paid if it gets used? Basically, yeah. I mean, some companies do give you something up front, but yes, but your, your general earnings from it are, are when it gets used. And so the aim is to write as much music of a high quality as you can to get it out there and into the world so that people are using it. And, um, you know, the same piece of music can be used in lots of different places. So you might write a piece of music and it's in an advert somewhere in one country and it's in a theme to a TV series in another country and it's in a radio ad somewhere else and it's in a movie somewhere else. It's, you know, you can get one piece of music can be very successful and then you can get 10 that maybe don't do so well, you know. Now, I rediscovered your music again uh, just through finding the Happiness Patrol remix that you did, um, which you know, I've been playing a lot. My kids are a bit sick of it. Um, what, what made you decide, and, uh, and since I've realised, of course, you've done a Gallifrey remix and a Survival remix, um, what, what, what inspired you to do some remixes and to get them out there? Well, um, so during the 90s particularly in the and the early 2000s I, I spent a lot of time doing dance music and that was kind of my thing that I was doing in addition to the tv stuff um and I had a record label and that was that was kind of um a big part of my life was dance music and a lot of DJs and electronic music artists as it turned out were also Doctor Who fans and um I was asked by a number of different DJs and, and uh, producers if they could have some of my samples from Doctor Who so that they could turn them into tracks. And I, I sort of put off doing that. To, to not, I didn't say no to people. I just didn't really give out much to people. And then after a while, I thought, why do people keep asking me to do this? Why don't I do it? Because I you know, make my own dance tracks. Why don't I use some of my samples from Doctor Who? Uh, because I recognise that there were some themes within the incidental music to Doctor Who which I recognised would work 
as new tracks. And so I just set about doing it. And initially, because um, I went to Gallifrey in uh, Los Angeles, the convention in Los Angeles, and um, they wanted me to talk about my work on the theme. And I thought, well, rather than just talk about it, I will do a little presentation. And I'll do a remix of the theme and I'll play it at Gallifrey. And so I did the Gallifrey remix, as it ended up being called, which was my first remix as opposed to the rearrangement which is what I did in 1986 this was a complete remix of what I had done in 1986 and uh, as I say that led me on to thinking well the other idea I previously had was to take samples of my stuff and make dance tracks out of it I'm going to now do an EP so uh, that's that's how the first EP came out um, you know it was um, first of all remixes of the Doctor Who theme and then I followed that up with remixes of incidental music Can I just ask, just out of curiosity, was Orbital one of the bands that approached you about the, the music? Because they obviously came out with a big Doctor Who theme in the early 2000s. Were, were they one of them? I mean, I do know Paul from Orbital. Um, and we met at a, we, we met at a, um, at a festival, in effect, in France. We went to a, a, a tiny, tiny festival in a chateau, uh, in a chateau in the middle of northern France. And we all went over on a coach. And it was run by a friend of mine and he put on this sort of alternative ele alternative electronic music event in a field, in a chateau in front. It was absolutely brilliant, um, really odd weekend, but fantastic. And Paul was one of the people that came along to the, um, to the festival and we just chatted over because I was doing some DJing and he said, you know, oh, great, I love you, what you play and everything. And it came out in that conversation that I used to work on Doctor Who. And he said, you used to work on Doctor Who? I love Doctor Who. And then we had this big, long discussion and he knew, knew my music and everything in Doctor Who. But no, he hadn't specifically, because he doesn't really work with samples. Um, you know, he's a synth guy. Um, but no, there were, there were a number of DJs and producers who I knew from various clubs and stuff who'd asked to, to uh, take tracks and remix the stuff, but not Orbital. Just, just wondering what a day in the life of a composer looks like. What does your usual day look like? Well, I get up late, usually. <laughs> no, I, I say that because I do tend to work quite late at night. Most most composers I know tend to work quite late at night. I think it's partly because the phone doesn't ring and it's dark and nobody interrupts you and the dog doesn't need walking and um, you know there aren't loads of things to do. The garden doesn't need looking at and uh, you know there there you you can get quiet time to concentrate. So I do do a lot of my work at night. Um, but my studio is in my house, which is outside my house in a room above my garage. And I just go in there and, um, you know, I, depending on what I'm working on at the time, I'm either working on writing something or I'm working on mixing something or I'm doing the underscores, which is the versions of the piece of music you've written that needs no melody over the top or you just need to produce like cut down versions. Sometimes you need to produce a a 60 second version of what you've recorded because they ask for different versions of the same piece of music. There are so many different things you get asked to do. Um, or I might be working on a film soundtrack, in which case 
I come in the studio and I've got my computer here and I've got the film on one screen and I've got the music software on the other screen and I sit in here for a few hours and work on that and I go to a break and then I'm back in there for a few hours and hopefully at the end of uh, you know a period of time you come out with an album or you come out with a film soundtrack. So I'm currently uh, downloading, listening to all your albums on uh, Apple Music. Do you, oh, right, yeah. do you actually get paid? I mean, how, do you actually get looked after with that sort of situation? Well, well huh. I mean, I love, so Spotify is a good uh, example. I love Spotify as a user. Who, who, what's not to love about Spotify? Any piece of music you want to listen to, press a button, blah, 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 there it comes almost instantly. You have any, as, a, as a composer or a musician, it's terrible <laughs> because you do get paid, but I mean, it's tiny 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 amount of money and you know you look at even pink floyd and they've i don't know how many million plays of dark side of the moon or something and they they earn a, a tiny amount of money in relation to the number of listens that they'd had and um you certainly couldn't earn a living out of digital downloads or streams of your music on on a streaming service so Mixed emotions, really. I use it all the time. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm a Spotify man because I, it's, it's, I've had it for years and I've built up a massive library on Spotify of the stuff I like to listen to. And if, you know, if ever I'm researching anything, they say, you know, could you ever listen to this? We like this. This is the sort of vibe we want for something. I'm straight onto Spotify. Um, so as regards composers earning money from it, it's, uh, it, it needs work. Not they haven't got there yet, and and I think it's gonna, there's going to have to be some adjustment at some time because people can't make can't make a living out of digital streams. So, what's the best way to buy your music to support what you're doing? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I actually have very little out there commercially because most of what I do is commissioned for TV and or, or commissioned as a library album. And the library albums are not for sale; they are for use by producers and directors and everything and editors but the the uh, small number of um commercial releases like for example the survival soundtrack best way is to go out and buy the vinyl or to go out and buy the cd because that does actually filter back to me i mean it all filters back to me don't get me wrong eventually it does but it's just the the level is quite minuscule from streams particularly streams so so you don't have a Bandcamp site or anything like that i don't Bandcamp site? No, I don't. Um, I just, I just rely on. I mean, because I say I don't really put out much commercial music. It's all. I, I used to do when I ran my label, No Bones Records, which I did mostly in the two thousands and the late nineteen nineties. They that was in the days of vinyl and uh, and CD release, and everything was done uh, on a physical basis. But now that's kind of, I don't really have much time to run the label. So um, the only releases I've really put out have been the Doctor Who releases. And I retained, uh, so I, I keep the rights to those for digital downloads. I do earn money from that, don't get me wrong. But, um, but I also made copies, CD copies, which I only sold at conventions. So to give it a little bit of rarity value, if I was doing a convention in, in uh, usually in the States, because that's where most of the conventions were, I, people could buy a CD copies of the remixes from me there. But, um, but that stuff's really not available in hard format. It's only available digitally. So the remixes, feel free, carry on, carry on getting them digitally, listen to them, stream them, download them. In fact, that's the best thing, download them from iTunes or something, actually, that's 
the best way for me. Okay. I'm doing that. So that's good. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, if, if you ever get out to Australia, make sure you bring a bunch of CDs and we'll find definitely. somewhere to put you up somewhere. Yeah, definitely. What part are you in? Uh, which part I'm, in C- I'm in Sydney. Okay. I've only so, been to Adelaide. Um, sorry, I'm not Adelaide. I've only been to Perth. I haven't been anywhere other than Perth, but one of these days I will get to your part of the world. Well, well, I've not been to Perth. Why were you in Perth? Well, we've got friends in Perth. So we were, my wife was born in Singapore and we were visiting Singapore and we've also got friends in Perth. So we did a trip, Singapore, Perth, spent a few weeks. It's not not too far from Singapore to Perth. No, exactly. An extra extra four hours to get to Sydney. Exactly. Exactly. So we couldn't do one without doing the other. And if you're in Sydney, who's in Sydney? Dwayne, are you in Sydney normally? I'm actually, I'm in Tasmania myself. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say, Kef McCulloch is in uh, Sydney. So if you're ever out Sydney way, you better better get in touch with him. Is Kef in Sydney, is he? Yeah, yeah, he lives in Sydney. Yeah, Kef's, Kef's mm. done many um, many appearances for the for the Doctor Who Club of Australia. So, um, Right. Yeah, well, I haven't been in Sydney for a long time, but um, yeah, that was the that was the only time I saw him in Sydney. Hmm. Right, right. I see Kef every couple of years. We, uh, Kef McCulloch, Mark Ayres, uh, Dick Mills, and myself, we go out about once a year or, or thereabouts and have a uh, Doctor Who composers night out. <laughs> we usually sit around and have a have a Chinese in a restaurant and uh, and tell scurrilous stories about each other. It's very entertaining. <laughs> do you ever get any twinges towards uh kef mccullock uh, in as far as um he he did the theme took over the theme from you after only just one year yeah i hate him i really hate him <laughs> <laughs> he's such a lovely guy i couldn't i couldn't possibly hold a grudge <laughs> no he's a great guy and i actually really like what he did with the who theme as well, well I more, the, liked- more the disco theme wasn't it the john yeah, yeah, but I, I like I like the way he did it, and he again he did it differently. And every time it's been done, it's been done differently, which I think is the the key to it. Really, I would have liked to have had a chance to 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 uh, keep it going a bit longer. My version, but I understood the the reasoning behind wanting to change it because obviously the whole thing was changing when um, when Sylvester made sense. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate uh, your insights. Love love hearing about what happened in the past. Um, yeah, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. That's been great. You're welcome. Good to speak to you both. Well, what a lovely fella. Dominic Glynn is. That was fantastic. Yeah, learned so much about what he was doing. It's I love the fact he was so young, but just so confident in what he was doing because yeah, I think a few years later, being given the whole Doctor Who theme to re rewrite, he'd have been terrified ten years later. But <laughs> he probably twenty three twenty three twenty four didn't even bother him, just yeah, loved it. Yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. Great to get that uh, that insight and a little bit of a change from our usual audio drama theme. But uh, speaking of audio dramas, have you got any that you want to recommend? I don't think you do this week, have you, Philip? Well, you know what I I mentioned already with the interview. I think um, what I want to recommend people listen to 
is you know, get Dominic Lin's remixes. Um, in the past, I think I recommended a, a, couple, a month or two ago, the Happiness Patrol one, but also the, the Ravalox collection and the Gallifrey remixes. Um, those two remixes, just have a listen to what he's, what he's done. Um, it won't be to everyone's taste. It's very electronic. It's a bit dancey at times. But I do love the way he sampled. The, the, you've got doctors' voices in there. You've got lines from the shows as well as instruments. You've got the harmonica. Yeah, just lots of stuff happening. Just, um, yeah, download them with your iTunes, your Apple account or whatever. Give them a bit of money by downloading them. But they, they're worth listening to. And, um, yeah, see how you enjoy them. I've been listening to those on uh, sh- Spotify. Um, but after that interview, I feel bad now for listening to them on Spotify. Uh, but they are there. If you want to try before you buy, you can you can do it. But it, it certainly is worth grabbing hold of. Uh, what I'd like to recommend is, well, first of all, can we just say thank you to Rob and David at the Doctor Who show for giving us a nice shout out the other day. They did a show on the Sontarans. So um, check out the, the latest edition of the Doctor Who show. But what I would like to recommend, it was mentioned in the interview too, and it is related to Dominic Glynn, is the fact that in the last week, I think it was last week, Big Finish, have you noticed Big Finish have been doing all these specials every week? There's something new. Well, last week, uh, their and special... And fantastic. Yeah, their special was a release of a download. Well, they, a few weeks ago, they did the whole iDavros as a bundle, a download bundle, which was which was really cheap and really it's a really good thing to have because Terry Malloy in that is just fantastic. But last week, they had all the Blake 7, um, the, the, oh, what are they called? A Legend Reborn, Blake 7, A Legend Reborn. Um, and when they first came out, because it's Blake 7 recast um, and, and redone as audio, produced in conjunction with Big, Big Finish and B7 Media. Um, years ago when they came out on CD, I bought the first few and I, I sort of listened to those, thought they were fantastic and didn't realise that there was actually 10 of them. And you can, you can buy all of them from Big Finish. Last week they were on special for a tenner. But it's gone off special now, but they're still incredibly cheap. If you go for, you can get all 10 episodes as a download bundle uh, for 20 bucks. So it's uh, a fantastic set to have. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's got some big names like Benedict Cumberbatch is in it. Uh, And if you like, I think even Michael Keating's in it. Jan Chappell is in it. Michael Keating, I think. Colin Salomon. Yeah, I think Michael Keating's still playing Villa. I think he was the one member that wasn't recast. I think. I could be wrong. It's been so long since I've heard it. Uh, but now that I've got that download bundle, I can go back and listen to all 10 because there's six or seven episodes I haven't heard. So I'm really excited about that. B7 Media presents Blake 7, The Audio Adventures, Season 1. In the 23rd century, the Galactic Federation was no longer a beacon of democracy and peace. It had become a corrupt tyranny ruled by elite factions who care nothing for the fate of ordinary people. Freedom and justice are things of the past. One man chose to oppose this. This man is a career terrorist. He will not hesitate to kill you. Forget and it will be the last thing you ever do. Yes, sir. Blue five. Blue five receiving. You will go for hard target entry and capture. Acknowledge. Roger, Tangent, going in now. 
Terran Confederation versus citizen Rog Blake. How do you plead? Not guilty, Your Honor. Good evening, Engineer Blake. My name is Savalan. No doubt you know who I am. When one is getting crucified, it's always useful to know who's banging in the nails. Rog Blake, you have been found guilty of a series of most heinous crimes. Blake was just one man. I have no alternative. Discredited? Than to sentence you to deportation. Friendless. To the prison planet Cygnus Alpha. And far away for the rest of your natural life. He's not a threat anymore. This is the Petazano system. Twelve hours ago, we jump in and we find this. But that's bigger than a battleship. Hmm. The derelict is on a collision course with this gas giant here. Nine hours after we rendezvous, splat. We want you to salvage the derelict. I can't do it on my own. I need help. Subject Avon Kerr successfully revived. Really? How unfortunate for you. Somebody has to steer it and sort out the control integration, and no one person can do all that in nine hours. Subject Stannis Jenner successfully revived. Listen, Blake, I'm a spacer. I'm not interested in Earth. Helmets on. Cycle the lock. Opening lock now. Defensive robot. Mezzin, two more behind you. Is that all of them? Mezzin? We're so screwed. Do you have a plan B? I always have a plan B. Death or freedom? You decide. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com. Confirmed. But just in conjunction with that, keep an eye out on the Big Finish website, subscribe to the newsletter because every week they're doing some really good specials and they're also doing a free episode weekly as well. I think this week just gone, the week we're recording, they've, they've just released the first episode of Gallifrey, which was called Weapon of Choice. They, they released that as a free download. So you can try that and then if you like it, you can keep buying the Gallifrey series, which I know, Philip, you would uh, be right behind because that's one of your favourites, isn't it? I love the I love the Gallifrey series. So if you listen to that first episode, you'll be hooked. So expect to spend more money after that. But at the moment, they're <laughs> quite cheap. But yeah, the, the Gallifrey series is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, they're my recommendations uh, for this week. And thank you for yours, Philip. They're great recommendations. Can I just say too, if you're still listening to us, that's brilliant. Why don't you rate and review us? Uh, because we'd love to get some five-star ratings and some reviews so that yeah, a few more people hear about what we're doing and can uh, hear some of the special guests we're getting. And we did do a slightly different episode this time, so not dealing with audio drama, but we still do with audio, uh, talking to one of the composers. So if you have any ideas of people that you'd like us to try and contact to talk to that you would like to hear from, send us an email, sirensofaudio at gmail.com, and you can find us at Audio Sirens on Twitter, we're on Facebook as well, so feel free to contact, contact us that way too. Anything else, Philip? Nope, that sounds fantastic. It's been a great week. Thank you. All right, listen to lots of lovely audio. You know why. Because 
audio drama rocks. Rocks.